0: Folks, it's lovely to be here. If you have your Bibles, please keep them open then. Um, just before I pray, just one or two general comments about this very well-known sermon. I'm sure, I'm sure Lucas pointed out to you uh, that this sermon is a to to believers, to uh, disciples, those that know as Father. And so we misinterpret this sermon if we think that in some way what Jesus is teaching there is is that we can somehow merit our salvation. Rather what Jesus is doing is describing life in the kingdom of God, now that God's kingdom has drawn near So let's find a moment of prayer and ask God to help us. Father, we do come to become into your presence. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your word. And even as i preach this morning, help me to be clear. May people remember, Lord, that this is, this is your teaching. Um, some elements are quite difficult, are demanding, but help us to remember that um, this is your word to us. May we receive it as such. Those are the words of men, but this clearly is the word of God. Pray this for your name's sake. Amen. four year old grandson was paging through a book, it wasn't a kiddie's book, it was one of his father's books, his father is a medical doctor, a surgeon and it was one of these thick medical reference books and here's his little four year old paging through this book. So his mother looks at him and says, uh, what are you doing? He says, I'm trying to find out where babies come from. <laughs> so, so his brother says, uh, why? He says, I want to send my young brother back. <laughs> Four years old, true story. I have a good friend, he's a pastor, I won't mention his name. He says that all his people give him pleasure. Somewhere they travel and somewhere they go. I think my friends, we would agree that uh, relationships can be the source of great pleasure, great blessing, but also the source of great pain. You know, the Bible prioritizes relationships. When Jesus was asked, what are the most important commands in the Lord Jesus' says, love God and love your neighbor? I teach at a Bible college and I'm continually reminding the students, you know, as we kind of pump them full of knowledge and everything. I continually remind them it's not about how much you know, it's about knowing God. It's by being known by your love. What makes the biggest impact on people sometimes is not how much you know, but how much you really know. Care. It'd be no surprise if the Bible prioritizes relationships. I mean, think: why did Jesus become flesh to remove that barrier between God and man to sit right to bring reconciliation, peace with God? We sin at all barriers, sin at all judgment. Jesus came to to take that barrier away, and not only vertical reconciliation, but also conciliation, reconciliation, horizontal reconciliation. So that uh, Jesus could say in another context that we should be known by our love for one another. It's a challenge for me teaching in a Bible college where we kind of focus so much on teaching and on knowledge. And the challenge for us is that when people visit us, when people interact with us, that they sense and they can see and experience something of that love. When you look at this very well-known sermon, We see that there is the same emphasis actually, particularly in Matthew chapter 5, on relationships. In this particular chapter, Jesus talks about a set set or series of what I call God-honoring relationships. Right relationships, prioritizing right relationships. If you go to church, I'm updating the imagery, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, what do you do? turn around, jump in the car and go and sort things out. There's a sense of urgency. If someone is taking you to court, set matters right then and then before you see a sense of urgency. Drop everything, set matters right. Jesus also talks about pure relationships. I'm assuming that you go with that last week, possibly. And today we're going to be looking at faithful relationships and truthful relationships. And then as you continue through chapter 5, Jesus talks there about sacrificial relationships and loving relationships. Very difficult to get through life without relating to others. Jesus' teaching in these relationships in this chapter is characterized by so-called antitheses, where Jesus contrasts the teaching. Of the religious leaders with the true intent of God's will. Again and again, there's this refrain You've heard it said, but I say it to you. You've heard it said, but I say it to you. So, against this background, and let's look at our text this will like morning. Look with me at chapter 5 31 through 32. It's been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. And I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorce woman commits adultery. Now I often tell my students that the Bible was written for us in the modern world, but not to us. When Matthew was penning his gospel, or Paul was writing his letters, he didn't have 21st century South Africans in mind. Yet we live in that same period of redemptive history that the the church age, sometimes referred to as the last days, that this is the word for us. But my point is this, that because we weren't, if you like, part of those original recipients, sometimes we have to dig a little bit deeper to understand what's going on here. Jesus' original readers would have understood exactly what he was talking about, but maybe today we say, well, what's really... Okay, well if you fast forward in Matthew's Gospel to Matthew chapter 19, there we have a more extended version of this particular issue. And I think it helps us unpack what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. In that context, Jesus is responding to a question from the Pharisees. I'm quoting from Matthew 19 verse 3. Is it lawful to divorce a wife for any cause? That's the question. See, they were always trying trying to trap Jesus. But Jesus, you know, you are never, you are a teacher. You know, is it lawful? Notice again, it's a question of the law. Is it lawful for a, uh, to divorce a wife for any cause? This question was prompted by Moses' instruction on divorce recorded in Deuteronomy 24. So we're jumping around a little bit. Matthew 5, Matthew 19, Now we're going back to the Old Testament. This is this is what prompted the question. This is what. What Moses wrote in Deuteronomy: If a man's wife becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he must write her a certificate of divorce before he sends her away. So the question is: What does it mean, indecent thing? If he finds some indecent thing in her, he must write her. A certificate of divorce before he sends her away. Well the scholars tell us that in the first century in that context where Jesus was teaching there were two prominent views on this particular matter so there was debate about this and so these religious leaders said Jesus what's your take on this? Rabbi Shammai taught that divorce was allowed on the grounds of adultery only So he had a much narrower view of the grounds, whereas Rabbi Hillel taught that divorce for any cause was permitted. So a very broad understanding. So perhaps if the wife earned the dinner grounds for divorce. Both viewed remarriage as permitted after legitimate divorce. Jesus I ever points out, I'm still now in Matthew Matthew chapter 19, Jesus points out that Moses' instruction was intended to regulate divorce under the old covenant. This requirement to write out a certificate of divorce was to discourage hasty divorce. In some religions today you can simply divorce your wife by saying three times I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. It's quite frightening and shocking, isn't it? And so there was this law there to regulate and prevent hasty uh, divorce. But what Matthew, what Moses was not doing was approving divorce. Jesus says again, I'm quoting from Matthew 19, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. that was the problem people under the old covenant the law of god was written where on tablets of stone so he told people what god required of them but it never gave them the power or ability the problem wasn't the law the problem was the flesh and so the law instead of bringing life the Lord God death. Now under the new covenant, where is the Lord God written? People of God on our hearts, not on tablets of stone. That's why I always find it a little ironic when I go to some of these churches. There you have on tablets of stone, you have the Ten know, Commandments. A little ironic, isn't it? But Jesus says, "You see, that was to bring people's hearts forward." So for any and every reason they would pursue divorce and so what this regulates is hey, slow down, slow down, slow down, slow down. If you choose to get divorced then you need to write this certificate of divorce. But Jesus said it was not this way from the beginning.
1: So these religious
0: leaders are looking to this commandment of Moses in Deuteronomy 24 and he says no, no, no. That's not really need to look. For your answer, you're all the way back to Genesis chapter two. That's where you find the blueprint for marriage. I'm quoting from Genesis two twenty-four: "Husband and wife, you're told, become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate." There's the pattern for marriage: husband and wife become one flesh. Incidentally that word translated wife the Hebrew word is the word Issa and it's the word that can be rightly translated as woman as well. So you can see here that the blueprint or pattern for marriage is between a man and a woman again uh, addressing this issue of same-sex marriage today. What God has joined together, let no one separate. That's the pattern. That's the blueprint between husband and wife. Back to Matthew 19, Jesus concludes, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman commits adultery. And here now Jesus takes us back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, echoing the teaching there. What Jesus is saying is that since God instituted marriage as an exclusive and permanent God-made union, what God has joined together that may not separate. Jesus draws the inevitable deduction that to divorce one's partner and marry another, or to marry a divorced person is the moral equivalent of committing adultery. Why? because that person, although divorced in the eyes of the law, is still married to his or her first partner in the eyes. of God. It's so interesting when Jesus unpacks this question in Matthew chapter 19. His disciples are taken aback and they say this, it is better then not to marry. So it's interesting, even in that particular ancient context, Jesus had, if you like, a countercultural view of what it meant to be married. And so Jesus calls us, as his disciples, as his followers, to be faithful to our marriage. you take those vows. you take them before God, God joins you together, you become one flesh and what God has joined together, let man not separate. The singular exception, divorce is permitted for marital unfaithfulness, only proves the point, doesn't it? The point is not okay, there's your escape at, but it proves the point. In fact, it's interesting when you look at Mark's treatment of this particular topic, he doesn't mention that exception. It's not that there's a contradiction between the two. I think both Matthew and both Mark were emphasizing the permanency of the marital relationship. But even my friends, where there is marital unfaithfulness, painful as it is, maybe I'm speaking to someone today that's experienced the pain of a fractured and broken marriage relationship. Even then divorce is not commanded.
1: Moses permitted
0: you because of your hard hearts. Moses never commanded. Secondly truthful relationships. Look with me in chapter 5 to 37 again you've heard that it was said to the people long ago don't break your oath fulfill your oaths to the Lord that you have made but I tell you do not swear all either by heaven for his God's throne or by the earth for it is his his footstool or by Jerusalem for it's his city and do not swear by your head you can't make even one head black or white all you need to say simply yes or no anything beyond this comes from the evil one We know once again that Jesus has the practices of the religious leaders in view here because he addresses the same issue again in much greater detail in Matthew chapter 23 and then Jesus directs a series of seven woes against his religious leaders labelling them and I quote blind guides blind guides for all their religious zeal and knowledge of the law Jesus labels them as blind guides. Don't follow. It's the blind leading the blind. Don't follow them. Matthew 23, 16 to 21, 22. No surprise that in the key verse of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells his disciples that their righteousness must surpass that of the religious leaders if they want to enter the kingdom of God. See there is another Bible college lecture here, you know in that particular context, these religious leaders were like, these Pharisees were like the Bible college lecturers of the day. <laughs> they kind of set the standard. <laughs> the people would have been shocked to hear that. And righteousness, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes of the Pharisees, you will never it is very strong in the Greek. It's a double negative. The strongest kind of weapon of putting the gate, you'll never ever get to the kingdom of heaven. And my friend, it's not like a high jump, you know, that the, the Pharisees are kind of hitting six foot, and if you want to get to heaven, you've got to kind of, it's, it's not like that, it's a different kind of righteousness. And we we'll see, will see why in the verses, that, as we unpack these verses, in a moment. The Old Testament required God's people to keep their vows. Exodus 20 verse 7, Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Leviticus 19, Don't swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of your God. Numbers 30, When a man makes a vow to the Lord, he must not break his word." The Pharisees are never argued that what the law was really prohibiting was, and I quote, taking the name of the Lord in vain. That for was the issue. You see, they latched onto that. So they argued only those vows which mentioned the divine name made them binding. If you didn't mention the divine name, the name of God, well then you were off the hook. But in our text, Jesus condemns this practice. Your righteousness must be different. It must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus points out that the formula used in making a vow is irrelevant. It's not an escape hatch to evade an oath like infidelity in the earlier verses. Even vows that don't mention the name of God cannot avoid some reference to them. That's what Jesus is saying in these verses. If you vow by heaven, says Jesus, it's God's throne. If you vow by the earth, it's God's footstep. If you vow by Jerusalem, it is God's city. If you swear by your head, it is God's creation, and the natural colour of your hair is under his control. So you saying you know, even if you don't mention the name of God in your vow, you can't you, you can't escape some kind of reference or connection. To God. Instead, Jesus insists that his followers will always tell the truth, not simply when under <laughs> oath. Indeed, vows should be unnecessary, said Jesus. So, quoting from chapter 5 34, do not swear an oath at all. Rather, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything more than this, Jesus adds, comes from the evil one. One commentator suggested, that like the evil one when you add more words there might be some kind of intent to deceive. Oaths like divorce were permitted by the Old Testament. The Old Testament regulated it, but neither was commanded and says Jesus neither should be Necessary. This doesn't mean that, for example, if you go to a court of law and they require you to raise your hand and swear, life, it doesn't mean that you can't do it. You certainly can. Well, let me make some concluding lessons here. I think it's true to say there's more to these verses than simply challenging and not to contribute to the divorce statistics, uh, or to tell the truth, I think there's more to these verses than that. The Bible has what one writer calls a covenantal view of marriage versus the world's contractual view of marriage. You know, the, the contractual view of marriage is that I enter into a contract with my partner and as long as my partner fulfills their responsibilities under the contract, i.e. keeps me happy, makes me happy, the relationship will continue. But once the party, the other spouse, doesn't live up to their end of the bargain, we can simply settle the relationship. That's not the view of marriage. What God has joined together, let man not separate. We are called to be holy, not happy. That's the pattern of this world. Significantly, the Apostle Paul likens the bond of marriage between husband and wife to the binding relationship between Christ and the Church. Marriage is God's idea. But more than that, marriage is a picture is a picture of the relationship between Jesus Christ and the Church. Christ is the bridegroom, the Church is his bride. Men day you are going to be a bride. Clothed in glorious splendour This picture, this Biblical picture prioritises the marriage relationship. The marriage relationship is meant to be the most intimate and enduring human relationship that we can experience on earth. Where the two become one flesh. It's interesting of course when you look at Paul's description of the relationship between the church and between Christ, he talks about union with Christ. In this marriage relationship between Christ and the Church, the marriage will endure. It's a match made together. And both parties will truly live happily ever after. It is for this reason I believe that faithfulness in marriage is so important for believers. It functions as a signpost, as a witness to Christ's faithfulness to His Church. So when there is infidelity, it destroys that picture, it undermines that picture and sends a contradictory message. The same can be said about the need for speaking the truth in our relationships. It's interesting if you look at Matthew 5.48 there's kind of a summary concluding statement there where Jesus says therefore be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. In other words in that particular context you need to be Godly, God-like, you need to reflect God-like qualities When we consistently speak the truth as believers, we function as witnesses to the God who speaks the truth. The God whose Word can be trusted. If, however, my friends, we are perceived to be untruthful in our speech, untrustworthy, we undermine that witness we in a world full with infidelity and lies, and let's face it, you know, if you watch your Netflix or whatever, you, know, it's, you just see darkness in so many of these things. Infidelity lies. Um, people jumping in and out of bed with each other as though it really doesn't matter. But we as disciples are called to be different. The picture is, the analogy salt and light, out of step with the pattern of this world. And this difference needs to be seen in the way we relate to one another. To quote Matthew 5 verse 16, that people may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We ought to be witnesses that people can look at our marriages, people can can look at our speech patterns, and it brings glory and honour to God. As I mentioned at the outset again, I want to reiterate the fact that this this obedience, these standards are not intended for us to merit our standing before God. The source of our obedience is not our flesh. In Matthew 4.17 Jesus says this, the Kingdom of God is present. And, and, and the Sermon on the Mount says this is what this is what the presence of the kingdom of God looks like. It's seen in faithful relationships amongst God's people. It's seen in people who tell the truth, no matter how costly. We obey our faith not in our own strength, but in the power of the Spirit, the Spirit that writes to the Lord of God. Our hearts. But perfect obedience awaits the consummation. That's why we have a time of confession, of prayer, uh, of sin. It's not out of place in the church. If anyone, John says, says he's without sin, he deceives himself and the truth is Jesus taught us to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. So we taste something of God's presence in God's kingdom in this life, but not in all its consummate fullness. There's no perfection beside of him, And so my friends, we will, and we do, fail in our relationships. Yes, even the Bible college lecturers of the day. And I'm sure my brother would say. Yes. Maybe his wife would <laughs> Perhaps there's someone this morning who's been hurt by others by the heard others by the words they've spoken or the promises they've broken. I understand that sometimes this is a sensitive topic. You know, it's not, it's not, this is not a difficult passage to understand. But but it's it's well let me put it, it's simple to explain, but it's difficult to know. Sad, isn't it, that sometimes when you have married couples that pledge lifelong from love to one another end up in a situation where they literally hate one another and they can't even be in the same room as another. It's the reality, so that's not so. Well my friends, the good news this morning, the good news of the gospel is that what, what man breaks, God can do. Sin infidelity fidelity lies. There is forgiveness. I want to quote from 1 John chapter 2. Right. John writes this. He's writing to Christians. He says, I write this to you. He's talking to believers so that you will not sin. Jesus says to his disciples, I'm, I'm, I'm teaching you this so that you will seek to reflect this fidelity in marriage and truthfulness in speech. But he goes on to say this. But if anyone does sin, John recognizes that he's just sin If anyone says he's without sin, but if anyone does sin, this is where the rubber hits the road. He says, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ. The righteous one. We've got the best advocate. access to the father. The Hebrew says we can approach this throne of grace with confidence to find help in time. Why? Because of our great high priest, because of our advocate. He's the righteous one, my friends. And so what he does before the father is he pleads his merits. His merits. Don't forget, don't look at Pete. Don't look at Luke. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He he is the atoning. My friend there is your hope. Not in here. We live in a world where people say you know you can be anything you want to be, it's all in here. No, no. The gospel says no, no. There's darkness and sin and failure here. There is Here is the Easter message, the cross, the cross. He is the eternal sacrifice for our sins, which simply means Christ makes right what we do wrong. That Christ heals our broken relationships. Maybe not perfectly in this life, but certainly in the life to come. I want to close with those well-known words. but Him, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Amazing grace. No matter how many our sins, the humanity says his mercy is for, Is that wonderful? There is forgiveness in Christ for our infidelity. And may this truth, the grace of God, motivate you to rectify the wrongs that you have done to others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Again, I'm sure I've said nothing that is new. But Lord, it's good to be reminded of these things. That you do require us, Lord, to lead lives that reflect your fidelity, your truthfulness. Thank you for your mercy and your grace in the midst of our failure. We cling to them. Fell us with your spirit, we pray. Help us, we pray, increasingly to be the kind of disciples you want us to be. That others may see our good deeds and give glory not to us, but to you, our Father in In Jesus' name we pray.